productive people and be peaceful. But the knower and the very experiences radiant human estates. And that's the place in practice that is tremendously productive because it's you know, the last domain of ignorance. So that that becomes an interesting understanding radiance as ignorance, which is different than the Shabkar use of the word radiance. I'm not talking about these conditioned states, but rather the simple, company zero like quality of mind. If there is a point or a center, right, that is the essence. Well, he, what he says, the essence of a level of being means the essence of some level self, of creating some being. Uh, and that's, this is really a point because it's a place where, as a meditation goes deeper, it's a place where we can really get stuck unknowingly, not thinking, yeah, this is, this is it, and yet it's that last, that last place of ignorance. So this is the intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, again, radiant mist and Chabhar's use is just that innate wakefulness of the innate wakefulness of emptiness. And it's not a state of mind. It's not a state of spaciousness. It's the simple knowing capacity. Mostly today, we like to go into the elaboration of the last line of that verse, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And the connection between emptiness and responsiveness. And this really addresses the question I was raised yesterday. If given the truth of emptiness and deconstructing self, then what does that mean for how we're living in the world? I think there are a few ways. One is that if it, if it feels like not only the you noticing it, but a sense of a felt sense of identification with that quality, so that there becomes a reference point in it, a center right, that somehow in some way that I'm the one who's knowing all this. Right. Yeah, yeah. Another way, and this is almost like a shorthand, the difference between radiance as a conditioned state and radiance as the nature of mind is if it comes and goes. 
if it's a state that arises and then it's there and then you're out of it, then it's just a state. When we actually recognize the empty nature of awareness, we see that it's not something that's being created. It's just the nature of mind. And even though it's, it's often obscured, that's different than going in and out of a meditative state. Right? And so, in that sense, the nature of mind is always accessible. For these other states, you need to get samadhi together and be still, and the nature of mind is always accessible. So, that's the soul check. It's ceaselessly responsive. Again, this is a, a quick review of the material we went over last time, less than two years ago. Um, in the Tibetan teachings, there's a very good uh, image uh, describing the move from delusion to awareness in terms of understanding how these factors are, uh, how we're experiencing them in our own minds. And it's the image uh, of ice and water, which we, which we talked about. Now, the ice being that state of contraction, of fixation, of clinging. Whenever there's any kind of clinging or, or contraction in the mind, it's like ice. And sometimes it's very gross kinds of attachment. Sometimes it's just the slightest identification of anything, like the identification with this radiance. You know, where we become the knower. Uh, so ice can be very subtle. Uh, water is the nature of mind that's completely open and flowing and no hold in any place. It's really the mind of no clinging. Um, as I've mentioned, <laughs> the, the challenge for us is to really see when it's water, when there's the nature of water, of complete openness, responsiveness, fluidity, and when it's slush. You know, it may not feel like ice, but I guess you don't get a lot of slush out here, so you have to, I don't know how vivid your experience of it is. It's kind of flowing, it's kind of fluid, but it's not water. And so we want to look at those states of mind that have the appearance of being water, but really there's some, there's some holding, there's some fixation. Kenti Rinpoche, who was, uh, you know, one of the great, the great Tibetan masters of the last century, his, talks a lot about, his, his teaching was all about the nature of mind. And there's a long, there's a long thing here talking about ice and water and how water is really none other than melted ice. So it's not, we're not thinking of this open nature of mind as being something different than our minds or more ordinary minds, it's simply the mind which is uncontracted, and that's why it's accessible in any moment. And it's not, it's not something we have to get, it's simply 
you have to simply let go of the contraction, let go of the frozen qualities, let go of the fixation. And so ice becomes water in the melting of the contraction. So there's just two lines here that I wanted to read. Uh, three lines. He says, one day as your confidence and awareness grows, and awareness here is being the nature of water, one day as your confidence and awareness grows, ordinary mind, or ordinary deluded mind, a fixated mind, wandering mind, as your confidence and awareness grows, mind will appear as, as witless as a child, and awareness as wise as a venerable old sage. <laughs> not to not to uh, minimize kind of the spontaneous spontaneity of children, but also to recognize that they're not actually enlightened beings, and that they are really very caught up in whatever they're doing in the moment, even though there's you know, tremendous fluidity and spontaneousness in that sense. You know, and we could be watching children really caught up in whatever drama of the moment is compelling. And from you know, our perspective, we see, we have great equanimity about it, because we see it's just the mind getting caught up in something. Well, this is our ordinary deluded mind. You know, that's why he says, witless as a child. <laughs> and that's how we're so caught up in our dramas and our stories and our sense of self. This is our ordinary mind. And yet the nature of awareness is like that venerable old sage who understands that all phenomena is just uh, empty and insubstantial. And it's both are within ourselves. Clear, and it's it's just great to to watch ourselves from that perspective to see how we get caught, we get totally involved and caught up, and in any moment of recognition, oh yeah, that was, it was just this flow of empty phenomena that I got caught up in. Okay, how does this how does this what does this lead to? This fluidity, the nature of mind is water. You know, the, it's, it's like water that flows down a mountain following the topography. It's ceaselessly responsive to the topography of the mountain, and it actually finds the shortest way to the ocean, given the particular topography of the land. And so I see the ceaseless responsiveness of our own minds in just that same way when we're not fixated in the sense of self, and we're not contracted in a sense of self, the mind is ceaselessly responsive to arising circumstances. And here's where I think there's a, there's a place of great beauty in the Dharma. This, this spontaneous, ceaseless responsiveness of the mind, of awareness to circumstances, manifest as love and compassion. Now, one could ask, why? Why does it manifest as aversion? 
you know, or ill will. Because the unwholesome states of mind are all rooted in ice. They're all rooted in a sense of self. That's where the unwholesome factors uh, come from and are given, they're given birth. Self, sense of self gives birth to them. When the mind is in the fluid state, the water state, the nature of awareness, it is free of that sense of self. And to put this in the context of the, the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, the Buddha says, non, the factor of non-hatred, and so this non-hatred, so this is, you know, in, this, in the kind of Abhidhamma terminology, non-hatred, which means, covers the range of metta, of loving-kindness, friendliness, liability, softness, so it's all those qualities. In the Abhidhamma, it says that non-hatred is present in every wholesome consciousness. So this feeling of friendliness or metta, one of the manifestations of non-hatred, is present in every moment of wholesome consciousness. When we are free of self, when we are resting in that nature of water, that is a wholesome, that is a wholesome quality of mind. And so it manifests naturally as love and kindness and as compassion. I'll read you something. That, this is this is to uh, let me balance out the remarks about the kids, <laughs> or or elaborate on it. Uh, this is from Rio Khan. Are you familiar with Rio Khan? He, he was a Zen uh, hermit, monk, poet. You know, I think it was the 18th 18th century, uh, beginning of 19th. And he was just an old hermit who lived you know, up in the mountains of Japan, very much lived in solitude, very simply, austerely, you know, but would just go wandering around the villages, you know, begging for food, playing with the children, and going back. Uh, and there's a wonderful book of his poetry called One Robe, One Bowl. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. So I'll just read this story. It's, it was written about his life. And it expresses to me this kind of spontaneous responsiveness you know, of the nature of mind, the nature of awareness. Said so when the Zen master went out, Ryokan, children would follow him. Sometimes they would shout at him loudly, and the master would shout back in surprise, throwing up his hands, reeling backward, and almost losing his balance. Whenever the children found the master, they were always ready to do this. Ordinary people frowned on this behavior, but the master laughed and said, when the children surprise me in this way, it makes them happy. When the children are happy, it makes me happy. The children are happy and I'm happy too. Everyone is happy together, and so I do it all the time. This happiness of the masters was itself a manifestation of the ultimate truth. Nevertheless, at times, Ryokan did become exhausted and would have to make his escape. The children liked to circle around him, clapping their hands and laughing with delight, 
When the teacher tires of this, he lies down and pretends to be dead. Then when the children are no longer hemming him in, he slowly gets up and walks away. <laughs> it's just this image of you know a great enlightened master it's just going out and playing with the children and entering into the world and makes them happy, makes him happy, and everybody's happy. You know, and then he gets tired and he pretends. And, and it's just, it's such, uh, I like it because it's kind of a counterbalance to maybe some other images we have of what enlightenment would look like. You know, and it really just brings out that quality of spontaneity and joy and loving kindness and compassion. This feeling of basic love or basic compassion as an expression of emptiness, they're really the expression of selflessness. And that connection is really important because then we begin to see that that emptiness or selflessness is not some kind of dry, impersonal withdrawal because that itself would simply be another subtle form of self. Someone there withdrawing out of some picture of emptiness. Rather, the true emptiness, emptiness of self, is like open space allowing for this spontaneous interaction of love and compassion. And it can be directed inward. This love and compassion of emptiness can be directed inward or outward. Inward, it's expressed in a wonderful line by this anonymous samurai warrior of, I don't know, I think it was the 13th century, or one of the lines in this poem he wrote was, I make my mind my friend. And just as a basic mantra for our practice, that could save us a lot of suffering if we realize that that's what we're practicing. You know, I make my mind my friend. Whatever it is that's coming up, you know, and all the whole range of phenomena, we have this friendly attitude towards it, understanding the emptiness of it all. And so we get much more accepting you know, of, of all our perversities. So this loving-kindness of compassion, of emptiness, of selflessness directed inwardly, I make my mind my friend, directed outwardly, is is expressed beautifully and so simply by the Dalai Lama uh, when he said, my true religion is kindness. And it's just so basic and so simple. When we're recognizing the empty, selfless nature, kindness is what manifests because we're not contracted into a place of self and separation. And so we practice that. We practice it from two sides. We practice it from the side of realizing the emptiness and we practice it from the side of being kind. You know, really seeing each opportunity of 
relationship and interaction, can we be manifesting that quality? And it, I get really inspired by it because it's so simple. I mean, just think. Uh, this might be another sidebar, <laughs> you know, practice. If with everyone we meet in the course of a day, that's our mantra. My true religion is kindness. That that's what we're practicing in every relationship. That would be a fantastic practice to do. And it would point out, it would reflect, it would illuminate many places of our attachment and our fixation, you know, where we don't want to be kind. You know, there's something else going on. So it would illuminate it, rather than us simply being caught in those reactions. So this kindness, or this loving-kindness, or the feeling of compassion that comes out of our understanding of emptiness, or selflessness, this ceaselessly responsive nature of awareness. In the openness, in the emptiness, there's this natural engagement with phenomena, with people, with what's arising, with the energy of kindness, with the energy of compassion. What happens, this, is, this becomes a great spiral upwards in a way, because as our minds are more loving and more compassionate, there's a greater inner sense of pliability, of softness, of openness. As our minds become more pliable and open and soft, we recognize the emptiness more easily, because we're not contracted. As we recognize the empty, open nature, our minds become more loving and compassionate. As we're more loving and compassionate, we recognize the emptiness more easily. And so, instead of a spiral downward into suffering, it's like a spiral upward into openness and interconnected. Now, there's a step here. From this place of selflessness, of recognizing that, of emptiness of self, and the basic goodwill that is there because we're not fixated in ice, we're not fixated in the sense of self, then when we come face to face with suffering, the natural response of an open, mind-heart, right, using the heart-mind, the natural response of an open heart-mind to suffering is compassion. And if, if we're not contracted in self and we come close to suffering in one way or another, the natural response there is compassion. Compassion in the sense of, how can I help? Compassion is that feeling. It's a feeling that arises that in some way wants to alleviate the suffering, 
in ourselves, in other people. And what's so uh, I don't know what the right word is. Challenging about understanding how all this is working is that compassion, the feeling of compassion in us, is directly related to how willing we are to come close to suffering. Because it's the awareness of suffering that gives rise to compassion. And so this is a piece that I want to explore a little further because this is what makes the practice of compassion very profound. You know, we may want to be compassionate and maybe feel that, you know, we often are, but it's often not an easy thing to do because in the face of suffering, whether our own or others, there is a conditioned tendency to contract back into ice. And so there's not that spontaneous responsiveness. We've been very conditioned in a lot of ways to withdraw, to pull back from suffering, because it's painful. And just like we know and we often don't like to be with our own pain. Very often we don't like to be with the pain of others. You know, especially when it's intense and we have a lot of strategies for pulling back or pulling away from suffering. You know, we become defended against it and we don't let it in or we become apathetic in the face of it, or indifferent, or sometimes aggressive. You know, people are so afraid, or can be so afraid of the suffering, that actually you know, strike out against it. I mean, sometimes I think of that in terms of you know, some of the ways a society responds to homelessness. You know, because it's, it's really so painful to see the suffering that's there, but instead of just letting that in and saying, okay, well, what's, what can we really do about this? It's like, how can we put it out of sight so we don't have to deal with it? And that, that move gets translated a lot in a lot of different areas. I want to read a poem by, do you know this, this Beyond the Snow Belt by Mary Oliver? Uh, she's, such, she's such a great poet, and uh, I mean, she really captures something here. Um, again, you have to imagine yourselves in New England now, beyond the snow belt. <laughs> Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting people hurry back to play. And scarved and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away. 
a land of trees, a wing upon a map, a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. Peacefully from our frozen yards, we watch our children running on the mild white hills. This is the landscape that we understand. I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arises from a distant land. You know, and it just, when I read that, it was like so true in my experience. And, I think, and we hear so much news of so much suffering. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. You know, and I think this is the great, the great challenge. Uh, how is it possible to actually open ourselves or have that loving, compassionate feeling to people two counties north or three countries south or people across the ocean? It can't be done from a place of self. If a self is trying to open to that amount of suffering, it's crushing. It's just, it can't be done. The self cannot, cannot shoulder that. The only way of beginning to open and letting it in is from a place of emptiness, of selflessness. So there's no, there's no barrier and it's just, it's just an open receptivity where we take in as best as we can the awareness of all this, and then the natural response will be compassion. Now, in speaking about all this, I think it's really important not to idealize or either ourselves or our capacities. For, this is a big thing. You know, this, this is not... I mean, it's one thing to do in metta meditation you know, may all beings be happy, and really to genuinely have that wish, you know, and settle into it. And yet another whole level is really to be empty enough of self that there's no barrier, you know, to the truth of how things are. Uh, so I feel it's always, it's always good to have a modest appraisal of one's capacity. <laughs> Otherwise, it either gets to be sent, sentimentalized. You know, compassion is something sentimental. Or self-judgment. You know, and so I just see what we're talking about now as pointing to a possibility. And to realize that in many ways, we are closed. You know, and this is a process, you know, of opening. But I think it's I think it's helpful to have a sense of the possibility, because then we know the direction. One way of practicing this in a realistic way, not in not in an idealistic way, is really to watch carefully all the places we do close. 
<laughs> so that we're not kind of living in the delusion, yes, I'm empty, I'm open, I'm selfless, I'm letting the suffering of the world in. <laughs> I think it's really good to ground ourselves in the actuality of our experience and to watch those times when we do, we are open in that way, and times when we're not, and we close off. Why don't we hold that for a bit? I want to kind of just finish this piece, and then because that's a really important, important question. And what I'm going to say now, I think, touches that. I think when we come to those edges in our relationships to suffering, where we see that we're pulling back in some way, that we're not open. I think if we investigate carefully at that point, we'll find that there's some deeply conditioned fears going on. You know, this fear of something which is keeping us from opening. Uh, and so it becomes a very interesting place to start investigating fear and how fear plays in our lives. It's like both in our meditation and in our life, we've, we've all kind of created a comfort zone. We start pushing the edges, both in our meditation practice and in our interpersonal situations. When we start pushing the edges, right at those edges of what's comfortable, the fears begin to arise. So I think it's helpful recognizing what some of these places are. One easy one, you know, we, do, we, we can see it a lot, is just in fear of pain, fear of physical pain and discomfort. We don't like it. Because it's painful, you know, and because it is uncomfortable. And so all the strategies we've developed, you know, for not opening to the pain. It can be denial, it can be self-pity, it can be numbing out in the many ways we do. Uh, There's this one story a friend of mine was in surgery, uh, and whether it's, you know, our own pain or somebody else's pain, and she was in surgery, and the doctor was trying to give her an IV, and couldn't find the vein. You know, I don't know. It's really, and this was going on like for 20 minutes, it was half an hour. Just you know, pogging, pogging, couldn't find. And my friend was kind of getting really, you know, it was very distressing. And the doctor, the doctor turned over and looked at her and said, you know, what's the problem? It doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, and it was just kind of a classic, just denial. 
of what was going on. It's like the doctor couldn't open to the open to the pain, the suffering that, that she was going through. And so there's that sense of just, okay, let me close it off and you know, deny that it's happening. Uh, so that's, that's one of the strategies. Another strategy we use is, can be self-pity, you know, where we just really start feeling sorry for ourselves when there's a lot of pain. Uh, or simply fear, or fear of anticipating what's this going to be like. You know, in the moment it's fine, but we imagine the next hour of the sitting, or the next progression of an illness or whatever, and then we get afraid of our own imagined, our own imagined pain. So as you know very well from the meditation practice, our practice is to learn how to let it in rather than keep it out. And that's, that's a great move. You know, and this is the move that allows compassion to flow, when we let things in rather than keep them out. And we can work on it in very simple ways with both the minor and major discomforts that we feel in life. So this could be a little practice mantra for you. Let it in rather than keep it out. And then when you're, when you're in a state of struggle, struggle always means that you're not letting something in. Something's not being accepted because if we were accepting of it, we wouldn't be struggling. So there are a lot of signals, you know, when we're in this place. So there's fear of physical pain, there's fear of, there's fear of emotions, certain emotions that are just too painful. And again, this applies as well to ourselves as other people. And it would be very helpful to really look to see When we pull back from certain experiences, again, either in our own minds or with other people, when other people are experiencing certain emotions, maybe it's rage or anger or depression or grief or sadness or whatever, loneliness, self-pity, right? what's our response to, to those emotions? Because they're painful, they're unpleasant. Do we open to them and accept them in ourselves or in other people? Or is there fear of them? Fear of being with them? Fear of feeling them? Uh, I mean, a great, a great exercise. And maybe it's different emotions for different, you know, for different one of us, but just as a common example, how are we with people who are very angry? Especially if they're very angry at us. <laughs> but even, even not angry at us, but just, you know, when there's that, there's that tremendous anger, how do we feel? You know, do we get protective? Do we try to close off? Can we stay open to that energy, right, which could allow for a more compassionate response to it? So there are many, there are many ways of practicing this. This fear of pain, fear of different emotions, this fear of death. Yeah. 
be interesting to really look carefully at one's own relationship to death, one's own death, the death of others, and as deeply and genuinely as possible to see how, how do we hold it? Are we totally okay with the fact of death? And if we're not totally okay, where's the, where's the gap? What is it that we're afraid of? What is it that we're holding on to? Because not to be totally okay with death is a problem. (laughs) 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 Since it's inevitable (laughs) for all of us. And it's just so illuminating because it's so powerful. It's such a dark, you know, powerful uh, revealer of our attachments, you know, of what we're holding on to. Uh, And so rather than simply be unconscious about what our fears are, can we recognize that they're there and then explore? then really investigate and begin through the seeing of it to come to the possibility of letting go of those fears through an awareness, through an investigation. And the Buddha highlighted some points which he talked about who's afraid of death. And with so many of his teachings, after you read them, it seems so obvious. Although before you might not have, you know, seen it so clearly or systematically. He said there are four, four, um, you could say causes for fear of death. One is when there's strong attachment to the body. It's obvious that there's strong attachment to the body, fear of losing the body. Uh, losing the body will be a cause of fear. Strong attachment to the body, strong attachment to sense pleasures to sense pleasures. If, if our lives revolve around sense enjoyment, if that's what we take to be the meaning and value of our lives, even sense enjoyment including the mind, any kind of sense enjoyment, if that's the value and meaning in our lives, obviously death will be fearful because is the sense of losing that, of giving that up. Not having done skillful actions in one's life. And the Buddha said that when people have not been conscious enough to really practice a life of skillful action and have done a lot of unskillful action, this starts to weigh, you know, on some level of mind. Uh, and you probably know this from being on retreat, where, you know, as the mind gets more silent, my experience has been at different times, all the things I've done, you know, start to come to the surface and I start remembering and reliving. And 
in times of reliving the unwholesome things, there's tremendous suffering. You know? And so if people have not done many skillful actions in their lives, Buddha said there's another cause for fear of death. And the last cause was just in not understanding the Dharma, of not investigating in this way. You know, and so just going along in basic ignorance of what's true, then at the time of death, it's fearful because everything's lost. We don't understand. It's completely natural. The Buddha, then he just went on in the sutta, he said, the people who don't fear death are those who aren't attached to the body, who don't overvalue sense experience as the meaning of their life, who have done a lot of wholesome things, and who have investigated the truth. I mean, it's so, as I said, it makes so much sense when he lays it out in this way. You know, it's so obvious. I think it would be really helpful to investigate this deeply because and honestly, Okay, well, what is my relationship to the truth? But what's so in our culture and our society and our way of being, we just know, we often just ignore. You know, it's, it's, it's not, people don't go out of talking about their relationship to death. Uh, yeah. And the Buddha emphasized you can reflect your death. It's, it's a powerful daily reflection. So I think it's helpful because it illuminates fear, illuminates the practice of fear, and fear is what closes the practice of suffering, and the closing of the suffering is what closes up compassion. So it all comes around. Okay, maybe where do I want to go here? We'll never, we'll never finish everything I have to, so. Well, I think that, that was the, the part of that first one. Well, again, but I think that we can begin to um, in our meditation practice, actually can begin to get a sense of, or the practice of opening to the pain in the moment and contracting, and the difference, and to see whether in any one moment it's workable or not workable, and whether the unworkability comes, now we're taking it just, you know, now. Whether the unworkability that we feel or the fear has to do with anticipated pain. We think, oh, this is going to last for the hour, for the day, for the. And just to get familiar with that move of the mind, the difference between relating to anticipated pain and relating to what's there in the moment. Because if we practice that in easier circumstances, 
then you'll have some level of understanding in more trying circumstances. Uh, so that's that's actually something that can be practiced. Maybe what's unbearable is that forever there will be more. (laughs) 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 
I would really look, I mean, that, that is a primal, a primal driving sense of samsara, which keeps the, which what keeps the whole wheel of samsara going, is desire for experience, and wanting experience. I would really look very carefully, or if you can, trace, trace the wanting back. The moment of wanting, that sense of wanting experience. I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. And this, this is so powerful because at the root of, I hesitate to say all, but let's say almost all, suffering is wanting of one kind or another. We want to have something, or we want something to go away, or... And so to trace back the wanting to the energetic source, what I mean by that is to actually feel the energy, the quality of the wanting itself, so that you're not staying out here in the content of you know, oh, I want this, I want experience, and then fear of losing experience, and you're really coming back to the energetic feeling of the wanting. Yeah, which I feel when I do that, I really feel it. It's like a contraction of the heart. And when I feel that, it's very, it's been very freeing to come back to that place of feeling it, and then there's a move which I call relaxing the heart. That's what it feels like. Which is the realization that we don't have to want. Wanting, in some fundamental level, is a choice. And, and it happens when we become identified with it. Now we become identified with the wanting, and then that wanting energy drives us to practice relaxing the heart into that place of non-wanting. To see what happens in that moment. Where does the fear go? What happens to the fear? You follow? Well, let me take a look. Because I'll, 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 I'll give you a clue. <laughs> if the fear is conditioned by wanting, and you let go of the wanting, do you see the possibility there? Yeah, no, I think I think that always finding the appropriate skillful means and language and that's not what but we're not there, we're here now and speaking. 
Yeah, no, it might not be possible. It is within certain limits and certain different kinds of limits. One thing to clarify, we use the word wanting in English to mean different things. So some confusion happens because we're using the word differently. Sometimes we use the word wanting to mean a grasping or a clinging, kind of the greedy quality of mind. Sometimes we use wanting in the sense of fulfilling basic needs, want food or water. That's a very different mind state. Well, There's a lot in what you're saying. So just to, I think what you're saying is quite correct in that there has to be appropriate response to conditions. Right? And even in the context of teaching about enlightenment and awakening, there's, there's one story of you know this person coming to the Buddha who was I don't know, they were starving or really hungry and wanting teachings, and the Buddha said, first eat. <laughs> you know, but he took care of that you know, domain of basic need, and then it's possible. Yeah. So I think that's absolutely true, and in different circumstances in the world, you can't go in and speak of the highest before those conditions are taken care of, and so this, I think that's, that's completely true. Um, I think part of the response to those level of conditions is precisely what we're talking about in terms of by letting the suffering that's there in, there's a possibility of compassionate response on the level that's needed, you know, whether it's 
food or shelter or nurturing, you know, or love. And so I see that as being the appropriate response. Even when people are in good circumstances, I wouldn't go around talking about selflessness, committing people. But it's always seeing, finding the right skillful means. You know, people go on retreat and they come out and start going back to their family and friends. Oh, it's all empty. There's nobody here. It, it doesn't mean anything. You know, and so people just, it has to be the appropriate, the appropriate skillful means at the appropriate time. My sense was that this might have been an appropriate time in this context for you, <laughs> not as a universal message all the time in every situation, because it's not. You know, it's what's going to be effective. Uh, but in this context, with this background, I think there is the possibility of actually coming to someplace fundamental in terms of understanding wanting and the possibility of letting go of wanting. So again, it's not at all to deny the relative level of compassionate response, which is really what this is mostly talking about today. This, okay. So anyway, going back, The danger of not doing what I suggest is that you build a belief system of how you are. You know, a, you build a story of fear of letting go of experience, and you start living in that story and not realizing that in any moment even if it's for just a moment, you can cut through that story and experience that place of not wanting in which there is no fear. And if you just see it for a moment, that then becomes an impetus to actualize it more fully. I mean, I went through this experience, so I know it well. I was going through a major at the time of my life, major fear. Just, I just fear was defining, you know, who I thought I was. And I was working on being mindful. I was just really working. At one point, Shannon and I were teaching in Texas. And I was going there. We were, we were going for a walk after lunch, and I was just going on and on about my fear and how. 30 years of therapy is not going to untangle us. And, and she just turned to me and just said, Jeff, it's only a mind state. <laughs> it's only a mind state. And you know, it's something, of course, I've said thousands of times myself. But somehow, you know, when it's the right moment and you hear something, it's, oh yeah. You know, I was creating this whole story about myself, being a certain way, and forgetting that it was only a mind state. 
And so that's what I'm suggesting, that actually you could see it as a mindset conditioned by wanting, and it's possible to let go of the wanting, again, even for a moment. Yeah. 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 I mean, we've all we, we've all built stories about ourselves, and then live in the story. I, th- I, th- I think the don't know mind is great. Maybe it leads to the same place if you actually recognize the state of the letting go or the quality of the letting go. Because don't know mind could also stay on the level of well, I don't know if I won't worry about it. But somehow it does not connect you with the experience of the heart released. Okay. Well, I would suggest that wanting, this exercise of wanting, not only for that, but really for times of suffering, because we don't often associate, we don't necessarily associate suffering with wanting. Usually we associate suffering with blaming. <laughs> Who's, who or what is responsible for my suffering? Instead of tracing it back to see, okay, is there some wanting here that's really the cause of the suffering? independent of the circumstances. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to your question, do you want to reformulate it?
Yeah. It's another kind of wanting. And that's, it's wanting a result. And one of, I think this was my first real opening to the, the wisdom of the East. So I was in a freshman, a sophomore in college, and uh, doing a course in Asian, Asian religion, and we read the Bhagavad Gita. And so I, you know, the first one I had come across anything like that. And I remember one line in the Gita, just, which was a re- refrain in it, it's just kind uh, you know, really open thing. It said, act without attachment to the fruit of the action. You know? And I think that that's really the response to that fear. It's like, can we respond, can we act without attachment to how it comes out? Because how it comes out is outside of our control. And it may have the effect you want, it may not have the effect you want. If we're acting without that wanting, without that attachment, then the fear of impotence in that situation dissolves. If the fear is coming from the wanting. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, that's really equanimity. Okay, but I, a, a couple of suggestions by way of keeping keeping the day in retreat, mindful mode. Uh, so I mentioned it, but I alluded to it briefly yesterday. I think it's good to go right from here to the walking without a food break. You know, because without a food break. Like, to go from breakfast to lunch is not that long. <laughs> you know, unless there's a medical, I mean, maybe some of you have a medical thing going on. Uh, so I think that it really helps just to keep, keep the energy uh, in this mode. And then as you do the walking, as I suggested yesterday, um, it's fine to walk at different speeds, you know, and to really get a sense of the mindfulness. To really work with dropping into the body and letting the subtlety of the sensations of the movement be known. And notice how spontaneously they're known when the mind is undistracted. So it's nothing, it's not an efforting to simply being there, feeling it. This, it's a, the walking is, is a very powerful practice. It's, it was really one of the keys to me in understanding the nature of mind because as I was walking and just being with that flow of sensations being known and realizing I wasn't doing anything. So the sensations were arising as a function of moving and they were being known completely spontaneously. 
and then turning that, actually just the sensations of being known, they're appearing and being known. And then there's the exploration of known by what? And it just opens one to the empty, open nature of awareness. I mean, it was the walking that really did it because the sensations were so apparent. There was no struggle to be aware of anything. It was happening so effortlessly. So there's a lot. The walking really reveals a lot. Okay, why don't we, why don't we come back to mm, 20. We haven't talked a lot about this, but with emotion, particularly, I think it's not as you're describing it, but it's often what we most personalize. I mean, as we see thoughts coming and going, usually, when a strong emotion comes, it's easy to take it as being self, as being I, you know, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling happy, instead of seeing it more as you're describing it, kind of as a wave of conditions. You know, the emotion arises out of certain conditions, felt, and then disappears. And just to practice, you know, opening to the emotions in that way, and then noticing when there is that sense of claiming them to the I or self, which is common. You know, we do that a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 And then after you saw that and smiled, 
could you open to the sound of it as equal to the sound of the waves? Yeah. Yes. Yes. whether the aversion was to the sound of the traffic or to the thought that it was traffic. Sometimes close your eyes and really just get into the feeling. The second way is with your eyes open, really notice the difference between the mind going out through the eye door or receiving what's seen. Because it's a de- very different move. Mostly it's the mind going out. You know, it's like we get captured by what we're seeing birds or the ocean or sand or whatever, like that. You can practice being there and letting it in rather than going out to it because it's very receptive in that way. Then when you're in that receptive mode, you begin walking and you can be receptive then both to the sight and the feel of the body. So it becomes a it becomes a more choiceless awareness, not not simply directed on the feeling of the feet of the legs. But you're able to encompass it you're able to encompass it all. Whereas when the mind is going out, then it's like the mind's getting fixated on that object and you can't be aware of it. You follow? The difference? This this working with seeing in this way is hugely helpful. I mean, I've noticed a lot when I'm on retreat and going for lunch, and actually, it's a good time to bring this up. Because in the busyness, you know, of everybody being at lunch and getting food, and I just used to find it very hard to really stay centered, you know, to keep the continuity of, of awareness. When I investigated that, I saw it because my mind kept going out of being pulled out by what I was saying, whether it was other people or the food. And so that's when I started actually noting, using the note, seeing, a lot. It's like from the time I would go into the dining room all the way till I got my food, sat down, just seeing, 
And what it did, by making that note, it reminded me to be mindful of seeing, rather than... I found that my mind didn't get pulled out in the way I just said. And I could actually be very receptive and let it all in, and it felt much more balanced. And then it was just things being seen. The eyes were soft, the body was soft. Also, a lot of the shopping center consciousness. You know, it's the mind's being pulled out by what's being seen. Anything else about the walking? notice any connection between the times of imbalance and the mind wandering? may have been, I mean, sometimes, the reason I ask that is sometimes I notice I can be really mindful and in balance, and then suddenly <laughs> I realize my, I get lost in a thought, and that sometimes creates, but in what you're describing, it sounds more to me like uh, there may have been an over-efforting to be mindful, and so that, yeah, it gets you out of balance, and so... That's why I was emphasizing the sense of actually just feeling it rather than observing. Because the observing mind can get too efforting. You know, whereas you're just feeling it's sort of like Tai Chi or, you know, it's very kind of soft and delicate and more conducive of balance. Ten more minutes in you before you keel over from hunger. <laughs> I'll just finish up one little piece about uh, the fear. Um, so again, it was just to 
to recapitulate a little bit from the experience of selflessness, of that emptiness of self, and begin to get a sense of intrinsically emptiness, we radiant, ceaselessly responsive, that water-like fluid responsiveness to circumstances, and that when it's really coming from a selfless place, it's love and compassion which is manifesting, because we're not separating ourselves out or rooting a sense of self. But in our lives, since we're not perfectly in that place of emptiness, of selflessness, in the normal interactions of our lives, we reach certain edges you know, in experience that are uncomfortable or painful or suffering where we pull back. You know, we, we contract there into a place of self and that blocks the flow of compassion. Then in investigating those places of pulling back, and this is for each one of us to do in our lives, to really notice, you know, come up against a situation of suffering specific to each one of us. You know, what do we do? What does our mind do in that uh, circumstance? And to see that in the pulling back, there's often an underlying fear of one kind or another. So then it becomes a way of exploring the nature of fear. So I just want to say a few words about how we can relate to the fear itself when it arises, because it will. You know, fear is going to come up in different ways and at different times. The first step in dealing with the fear is recognizing it. Because if we're not paying attention, we just pull back, we contract in the face of suffering. And if we're not being mindful, we don't even know that the fear is there. And so it's really using the time, using those times of disturbance, where we feel ourselves disturbed by something, let that be a mindfulness spell saying, okay, what's going on here? And again, so then recognizing that it may be that fear is there of one kind. Looking at the nature of the fear itself, as Sharon's remark to me, reminding oneself that it is just a mind state arising out of condition so we don't get lost in a story of ourselves because this happens so often with repetitive emotions or recurrent emotions not only do we identify with them I'm feeling afraid I'm feeling sad I'm feeling happy but then we also build a whole story it's like a skyscraper of self I'm a fearful person or I'm a sad person, or I'm a whatever kind of person. We, we build a story which we tell ourselves about ourselves. And so in working with fear or any other strong emotion, we want to recognize it, become accepting of it. It's okay that we're feeling it. And then not identify with it as being I or self. We're not creating a whole self-image about ourselves. It really is amazing to see that fear is just a mind state. It just arises out of conditions if we're accepting of it. It's okay. It comes and it goes. 
and it doesn't control our lives so much. It doesn't drive our choices. It's not that the fear will necessarily stop coming. It may keep coming, you know, in different circumstances, but each time we see it in the same way. We begin to see its transparency. Before uh, coming out to L.A., Anne had uh, faxed me one passage from the book, which I suggested you read, Flash of Lightning. Uh, so I want to read the passage. She was she asked if uh, you could just say something about it. Let me read the passage because it ties in to what we're talking about. Everyone has at least some unselfish has at least some unselfish tendencies, however limited. To develop these until the wish to help others becomes limitless is called what is called bodhicitta. The main obstructions to this development are the desire to harm others, resentment and anger. To counteract these it is therefore essential to meditate on patience. The more deeply we practice, the less chance there will be for anger to arise. Patience is the best way to avoid anger. And I just wanted to extrapolate that it's not only about anger. Patience is the best way to deal with many of the unskillful or difficult mindsets. So I thought I'd just to say a few words about patience. What is this quality of patience? Um, we basically need it with all unpleasant experience. Patience is the antidote to aversion. Uh, so fear is an aspect of aversion, anger is an aspect of aversion. We generally don't need patience with pleasant things. We need patience with unpleasant things. This is the end of this tape. Please proceed to the next tape. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.